The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Exodus 22, the entire chapter, and then the first nine verses of chapter 23. So a longer text once again, but let's... uh, Worship the Lord by giving good attention to this, the public reading of his word, Exodus chapter 22, and beginning in verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property." For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, An oath by the Lord shall be between them, both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, The owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. 
If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's look to him and ask his blessing again as we receive his word this evening. Let's pray. O Lord, the grass withers and the flower falls, but your word, O Lord, endures forever and ever. May it be only your true word, Lord God, which is proclaimed this evening. And as it is indeed proclaimed to us, grant once again that we might show ourselves to be those blessed ones who hear that word and who obey. Do that good work in us, gracious Father, by your Spirit. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we have a lot before us this evening, don't we? God's law is... Very extensive. We might read all of this and say, are we as Christians really required to know and to keep all of these rules? Well, the answer is, in one sense, no, not really, but in a very important sense, yes, absolutely. Our confession is very helpful in this regard and in terms of what it teaches us about God's law and those categories, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil or judicial law. And later, I'm going to say a little bit about that. But I also think it's helpful for us to just keep things very simple. That's why this evening I had us confess those kind of uh, back to the, the basics, the simples, the ABCs of Christianity statements from our catechism, which teach us what are we to learn from the Bible. We confess this evening that the Bible is that, that rule which God has given us, that rule whereby we might realize our chief end, that of, of glorifying and enjoying him forever. We, co- we confessed our, our belief about just what it is that the scriptures principally teach, and that includes our text this evening. All, every one of these commandments, they're all part of that 
rule which teaches us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. Uh, Another way to put that is to simply say it teaches us what God is like and therefore what we are to be like. What God is like and what we are to be like. That, that, That simple truth I think is expressed so well in one of the proof texts that support the catechism we recited this evening. That's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I kind of prefer the old King James, the, the translation. I memorized it as a child and the very one printed in the, in the, uh, as the proof text for the, the confession. But it says, He has shown thee, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk, walk humbly with thy God. And I want to suggest that, that that speaks so powerfully to that simple question of what it is that the scriptures principally teach. What is God like? And what are we, therefore, to be like? And it gives us a very nice paradigm, I think, through which we can look at this text before us this evening. We're not going to cover every detail. We're taking more of a kind of a high-level bird's eye view in some ways, but it teaches us wonderful things about what God is like and therefore what he required his people to be like. Our message this evening is this, that the Lord is the holy God of justice and of mercy who calls his people to walk humbly with him. I have three points for us that help us kind of unpack that. We're to consider simply that the fact we consider that, that, that God is, is just and he is merciful and he's a God who consecrates his people unto himself. He's just, we're to be just. He's merciful, we're to do mercy. He consecrates us unto himself. He's holy and we're to live consecrated unto him. That's the walking humbly with him, our God. So consider that first point, the justice of God. The Lord is just. We are to do justly because God is a God who is just. Just and wise. We see as our text begins that God's justice and his wisdom requires making proper distinctions when, when dealing with cases of theft. So it was uh, in Israel. What is proper restitution is a big uh, question that was to be addressed in cases of theft. By the way, I will say one, one thing is kind of a side note. Uh, one important thing that we could mention, in fact, it was being discussed by some of our brothers last week after the sermon and in God's providence looking at this section, one particular commentator, uh, Stuart, he begins the section by addressing something we might note, and that is there were no prisons in Israel, no prison sentences. Uh, Stuart points out that God prescribes as penalties for offenders restitution, not residency, not having uh, an offender reside in a prison for a period of time, restitution. And so uh, you see the wisdom of God in this, in that what it meant was that offenders had to deal directly with their victims. They had to face the reality of the way in which their crimes had affected those victims. In Israel, victims were actually compensated, compensated immediately and generously by their offenders. So rather than being further penalized by having to to pay, along with the rest of society, paying through taxes, essentially to house and feed and clothe your offender during a period of confinement. Uh, Instead, they were actually compensated immediately. 
There's a lot more we could say by way of uh, speaking to the failures of the, the prison system in Western society. I'm not going to say any more. Just leave it at that for now. But, but we see the wisdom of God, and, and, and we see in, that in God's wisdom and his justice, his laws regarding restitution, they were not arbitrary, not arbitrary, wise and just. By the way, I think we should always assume that's the case, even if we look at something and we grapple with it and we don't quite understand it, as we look at the way our text begins this evening in 22, verse 1, honestly, I'm not sure myself why the difference in terms of restitution between an ox and a sheep, why fivefold versus fourfold restitution, commentators debate and speculate and have their ideas. I wonder if perhaps the difference is something that would have been understood well by an ancient Israelite in a way that we don't know today. But even for them, for even for Israel, the Lord was calling them to lean not on their own understanding, but to acknowledge him as they diligently studied and applied his laws. Israel's judges were to, to seek to study these, these precepts and seek to apply them And they were to do so, one important thing we can say, speaking of of God ultimately being the the, the judge, we can can point out that they were to do so in ways that would recognize, in which they were recognizing even their limitations. As an illustration of this point, looking at verse 4, we might wonder why it was that, that restitution for stealing an animal was only double in the case of an animal found yet alive in the possession of an alleged thief. Why is that? Well, one suggestion is that in such a case, there was reasonable doubt about the intent on the part of a thief. So an alleged thief might be claiming, look, here it is, it's fine, I, I found it, I was intending to return the animal. Those presiding over the case might look into this and might might come to believe that probably the thief is lying and guilt, uh, guilty of the crime, but that there was perhaps reasonable doubt about that, and so that called for a, a less severe penalty, double rather than fourfold or fivefold institution. But it was different if, as in verse 1, the thief immediately sold the animal or, or immediately killed the animal and ate the meat if there seemed to be evidence like that, that the, the thief was perhaps trying to cover his tracks, get rid of the evidence, if it was proven that he had done this, then it was quite clear what was his intent, hence a stiffer penalty, intentions. By way of contrast, note 22.5, which deals with the situation of a person's animal wandering into the field and eating another person's crops, Or verse 6, the case of a person who carelessly started a fire and allowed it to get out of control and it ended up burning his neighbor's crops. Generally, you didn't do that on purpose, right? Generally, that was a, a crime that did not involve intent. They did, nonetheless, those such cases warranted full restitution, but not double or quadruple restitution. So when it comes to judging righteously, God was saying, intent is an important factor. Judges were to seek to uh, to discern intent then, and God gave these different laws so that they could study, they could seek to apply them, they could consider these factors, they were to to weigh the evidence and seek to render righteous 
judgments as best they could. And on the one hand, God wanted his people to believe that, 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 that he wanted his people to trust him, that he would be pleased to work through righteous judges who would make good use of these principles and that they would render righteous judgments. On the, uh, on the other hand, they were also to see the limitations. They would remember that ultimately God is the one who will in the end render perfect, righteous judgment. Ultimately, they were to, to understand that God alone is the one who knows everything, right? Only God, God is the one who knows perfectly even the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men. Only God is the one who can look at every case and know everything that is truly uh, transpired in every instance, even when there is insufficient evidence for a judge to render a decisive verdict. Know what we see in, in 22.7 and following. You know, what, what, what do you do if you've given your neighbor money or goods to keep safe and suddenly your neighbor's claiming that a thief came and stole those goods? Or, or similar situation in verse 10 with respect to an animal. You entrusted your animal to your neighbor for safekeeping and his claim is that, well, the animal died or it's become injured or it was driven away. Maybe they seek to look at the evidence, but there is no evidence to support your neighbor's claim. Note the language there uh, in both in verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8, it says, the thief is not found. Or the end of verse 10, it seems there's no witness. If it happened, it happened. It says, without anyone seeing it. Maybe, back to verse 9, maybe you're, you're convinced that it's your sheep that has suddenly shown up in your neighbor's flock, right? You're saying, that's it. That's mine. But your neighbor's saying, no, it's not. It's mine, claiming it's his. And so what is to be done? Right? The, the judges are seek to do everything they can to weigh the evidence, but there may be those cases where you can't know for sure, and you leave it in God's hands. As verse 9 says, both parties shall come before God, I believe contrary to other translations like the NIV there, I think the ESV is correct that this is a reference not to coming before the earthly lowercase g that is judges, but coming before God himself. I think the same idea is what we see in verse 11 where it says that an oath by the Lord shall be between them. So the law was saying, in in some cases, you need to let these disputing parties come to the holy place. Let them testify under oath before God. Leave it in God's hands. Let God and his holy presence strike fear into the hearts of these ones. If one is lying, let the Lord shame and condemn this one into coming clean. And if he continues lying, well, leave it to God. Leave it to God to bring judgment, whether in this life or in the final Judgment or both. Leave it to God to judge. There are limitations to our ability to discern every case, but we know that we have a judge who sees all and he will do what is good and right. It's the same thing which we see as our text ends, jumping over to uh, chapter 23 and verses 1 through 9, the section in which God gives these uh, laws requiring honesty, requiring justice, requiring a fair treatment. He gives these principles, but they come with this reminder, that as, one, and what, as one writer puts it, that God himself is enforcer. So the end of 23 verse 7 says, I will not acquit 
the wicked. In the end, God will not acquit the wicked. Here again, the Lord was saying that, that because he is just, his people were to, were to seek themselves to do justly, but they were, do, they were to do so knowing that ultimately he, the Lord God himself, would be the one to enforce perfect justice. I want to think more about the Lord's justice, but to do so in connection with our second point as we think about the mercy of the Lord. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful, and therefore we are to do mercy, to be merciful. Do justly and mercifully, because God is both just and merciful. In fact, God's justice does not, or his mercy does not compromise his justice or Vice versa, right? All of God's glorious attributes exist together in his one perfect, glorious person. In fact, as we look at our text, I think we see how wonderfully his, his justice and his mercy come together beautifully. We're reminded by these commandments of a very important reason why God is so zealous for justice and righteousness in judicial matters. Often justice is perverted in such a way as to, uh, it's perverted at the expense of those who are weak and poor. Often justice is perverted against them and in favor of those who are rich and powerful. One reason, of course, is that the rich have money. They're able to go and bribe judges and pervert justice. And you see in chapter 23, Verse 8, how it says, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Or two verses earlier, verse 6, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. And why is that? Well, part of the reason is because that mercy that God feels. He is just, but he is merciful. Note the mercy of God, his heart for the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the poor. Look at the way our text ends, verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know the heart the Lord is saying, you know what it feels like to be in their predicament. You ought to be those who sympathize with the weak, the oppressed. You were once oppressed yourselves, don't you remember? You suffered in the iron furnace under the cruel hand of Pharaoh, the great oppressor. Even subsequent generations who weren't in Egypt, they were to know it well. They were to remember the history of their people. God was saying, you were slaves, and I came to you, and I had mercy upon you. I had compassion on you. I redeemed you while I judged Pharaoh. And God was saying, do not now take the position of Pharaoh, right? Don't become the oppressor yourself, or I will once come again, and I will judge. I will deliver the weak and the oppressed out of your hand, and I will judge you. So we see as we flip back over to 22. Chapter 22 and verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Lord was was concerned about the sojourners, but not only the sojourners. Uh, Verse 22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. In fact, look at what it says in verse 23. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And just note the way uh, verse 40, 24 there speaks to just how much the Lord hates 
oppression. It says his wrath burns against it, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. A strong warning there, a warning we do well not to miss this evening. That, that, that person that so disparages the mercy of the Lord, such that he, he acts in such a way as to act completely contrary to the Lord's mercy, he shows that he is a person who knows nothing of the Lord's mercy in his own life. And in the end, he is one who will not receive mercy, but will only receive judgment. We think of the, 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 uh, the unmerciful servant, right, in our Lord's parable, Matthew chapter 18. Note just exactly what it was that the Lord was warning against. What kind of mistreatment is in view? We have examples here. Verse 25, the sin of of lending to the poor in order to exact unfair interest. This amounted to to really exploiting the uh, the poor in their desperate situation. Or or verses uh, 26 and 27, we see that the same could be true with respect to, to taking loan sureties. Uh, receiving properties as, as collateral to ensure that one would repay his loan. And so when giving a loan to someone, if, if someone was, was wealthy and had properties that they could offer, properties which were non-essential to their survival, it was legitimate to receive a surety. But what if a person was, was so poor that the only thing that, that he or she had to offer as a pledge was the very cloak that kept them warm at night, and you could see the way these were kind of examples which would be applied more broadly to different situations. But to take a person's only cloak off of their body, as it were, make them suffer, sleeping in the cold, well, that was, that was unacceptable to the Lord. And why is that? Look again at verse 27. What a beautiful description here of what the Lord is like. We see that when the poor and the oppressed, they cry out to him, there may be those in this world, they ignore that cry, right? They're so hard-hearted, so lacking in mercy and compassion that they don't hear, but the Lord hears. He hears when they cry. If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Think on the Lord's compassion this evening, dear Christian, that that ought to melt the hearts of everyone who truly knows the Lord, everyone who knows the heart of of Christ. And we do well to think on that, don't we? Remembering the Lord's mercy to us because it says we remember his mercy to us that we in turn are merciful to others. You were poor. You were oppressed. Think on that. You were suffering under the guilt of your sin, suffering in bondage to your sin. You were bound for hell. And that's why God came to you in his mercy. That's why Jesus came. And for your sake, God himself came and he became the poor. He became the oppressed. He became that one. The Son of God became man and he came and he suffered and he was even nailed to a cross where he bled and he died for all of your sins. God's justice and God's mercy came together perfectly in the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ. And it was only because of God's grace that he opened up your eyes to see his mercy in Christ. It was only because of God's grace that you, you cried out. You cried out to him in faith. And he did not ignore that cry. He listened. He heard. He had compassion upon you. He saved you. Your testimony, my testimony is like that of the psalmist, right? Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
And if, if that's your testimony this evening, brothers and sisters, then you know the justice and you know the mercy of God and you understand the call then to do justly and to love mercy. There's more I want to say about that, but, but let's do so in connection with our last point as we move on to our, our last point about consecration. The Lord consecrates his people unto himself. That's the last part of, of Micah 6 eight. Walk humbly with your God because your God has consecrated you unto him. He sets his people apart for that holy purpose, consecration. We might think of the, the priests, the sons of Aaron, how they were consecrated, set apart for their holy uh, ministry in the temple. The same was true for all of the things in the temple, right? The ark, the lampstand, the gold, the silver, all of the utensils, all the sacred things pertaining to the sanctuary. They were consecrated. They were set apart for that holy purpose. But as we're reminded in our text, 22:31, all of Israel was consecrated as holy unto the Lord. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dog. And note in our text that, that we're seeing some commandments mixed in there that, that we would consider ceremonial laws, right? The diet code generally is considered part of the ceremonial law. I think the same is true of what we see in, in verses 29 and 30 and the commands to be bringing offerings, offerings from your, your harvest, to offer even your firstborn son as well as your animals. Obviously, the firstborn sons were not sacrificed. They were redeemed by means of a vicarious a substitute. But we see ceremonial law here. As we mentioned earlier, uh, even civil disputes were sometimes resolved by coming to God Taking oaths, make, taking oaths before God in the holy place. I think arguably this, this reflects the ceremonial law at, place, at play here. It didn't surprise us to see the, the ceremonial law intermingled with the, the civil law. It's not to deny what our confession teaches in terms of those helpful categories, the moral, the ceremonial, the civil or judicial law, but it's not always completely easy to to know how to categorize a particular commandment, and the Lord doesn't expect us to kind of go through the Bible and divide them all up and throw them in each of their different separate bags or separate compartments, right? With respect to the civil law of Israel, in, in some ways, Yes, we we speak of it being expired with the state of Israel. There were certain laws that don't pertain to us because they they sort of they presuppose Israel's unique status as that nation in covenant with the Lord. On the other hand, the confession speaks of general equity. There's there's overlap between the moral and the civil law. We learn the principles of the moral law as it's played out in Israel's civil law. In a sense, we've continued to, to learn about how the, the, the Ten Commandments apply to our lives even this evening as we've been seeing many of Israel's civil laws. And the same is even true of the, the ceremonial law. Of course, it's been abrogated in the New Testament, certainly in the sense that we don't go sacrificing animals now that Christ has been sacrificed for us, but there's a sense in which we are bound yet even to keep the ceremonial law, certainly insofar as it teaches us moral principles. In fact, our confession teaches that the ceremonial law holds forth diverse instructions of moral duties. 
We're to come before God with clean hands and a pure heart. Perhaps the best way to, to illustrate the moral component to the ceremonial law is, again, simply to look to Jesus. Look to our Savior this evening. Remember how he himself is that one who so wonderfully, so supremely fulfilled the moral law as he fulfilled the ceremonial law. What is, the, what is the, the principle of the moral law? Is to love your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor. Well, Jesus loved his God perfectly, and he loved his neighbor, loved you, loved me perfectly as he offered himself up as that sacrifice to wash away all of our sins. Is Jesus not that one who perfectly did justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with his God, walked humbly with his God all the way to the cross. And it was only because of him, only because of Christ, the coming mediator, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one whose grace was revealed to Israel, revealed even in the commandments we see before us this evening. It was only because of Christ that the the saints, God's people, were enabled to live consecrated unto God, walking humbly with him. Just think on that. What amazing grace to think that these defiled, depraved, proud sinners could be commanded, could be enabled by the grace of God to walk humbly with him. That's grace. That's amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Sanctifying grace. Holy love. Pure love, we see that it called for, for sexual purity. You know what we see in 22, 16, and 17? The, the case of, of fornication, a man who commits fornication. Uh, presumably this was not an assault. There was a, a, uh, there was a sense in which this was consensual, but the responsibility was with the man, at least primarily. So a girl was not married to him, not even betrothed, and, and he seduced her. What was he to do? He was to act justly. He was to do honorably. He was to to pay the bride price and make her his wife. Or if the father refused, he was to to, uh, accept the consequences of his sin. He was to to pay the penalty. God's people were to, to keep the marriage bed pure. God's people were to purge their, their holy land of all sorcery, 2218. Uh, certainly the same was true of bestiality, verse 19. Certainly the same was, was true of, uh, with regards to sacrifices to false gods. These were all capital crimes. And, and notice, uh, as we look in 23 again, that they, they were not to pervert justice at the expense of the poor, as we've seen, but neither were they to pervert justice in order to help the poor. So 23 verse 3 says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. This really, I think, uh, maybe even more profoundly goes against the prevailing mindset of, of our society today, right? Often the assumption today is that if anyone's rich, then he is guilty and it's perfectly okay to trample all over his rights. It might seem like a a righteous thing to help the poor no matter what the circumstances, right? Even if it requires compromising the truth a bit. 23.1 speaks of joining hands with a wicked man and becoming a malicious witness. Or verse 2, note note well here that 
that, that even if many are doing it, right? Sometimes it seems everybody else is doing it. It can't be so bad, right? No, even if many are doing it, that does not make it right. We see the warning there about falling in with the many and bearing false witness, perverting justice. Even if it things, seems like a good thing to do, many think it's good and perhaps it seems good because it's helping out a poor man. No, if it's, if it's, if it's false witness, it's false, it is unjust, and the Lord is not pleased with it. Good reminder, the Lord certainly does desire that we be concerned about social justice, but not according to an ungodly, worldly definition of social justice, right? Only according to God's word, God's commandments. We are to love mercy, but we are not to love mercy that perverts God's justice. Brothers and sisters, in a in a crooked and depraved generation with such a a prevailing, distorted sense of justice, that ought to make us even more zealous and more grateful for the fact that God has given us his truth. Just think on that this evening as we close. Let that that challenge us. We think about the blessing of, of having the truth, God's truth, God's justice, and his mercy in Christ, in him. God has shown us True mercy, not by violating justice, but by facing the judgment for us, Christ given over to wrath, that we might receive mercy. Let that move us to zeal, zeal for the Lord, zeal for his justice, zeal for, for his mercy, mercy. And may it, may it move us, may it move us to be those who desire mercy, even for our enemies, even our enemies who we might say are our enemies, ideologically speaking, right? Those who we might think hate us because they hate God's truth the most. How could we not desire mercy for them? How could we not desire mercy for even those who are the, the most wicked in this world? How could we not, when every look into the commandments of God humbles us and reminds us that, 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 that we so desperately need God's mercy ourselves, We should feel that need all the more. And we should feel it all the more if we're struggling in our hearts to to, to show forth in our lives or to feel in our hearts genuine love for, for those who are against us, those who hate the gospel, those who hate God's truth. We do well to remember this evening, but for the grace of God, we would be every bit as wicked and deceived as even the worst sinner, the greatest enemy of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us seek to be for them what God has been for us. Let us pray for them. Let us have hearts of mercy and compassion. And as God enables us, let us show that mercy and that compassion to a world that is lost. Even our enemies. Isn't that what God's law requires? Look at 23, 4 and 5, and we'll, we'll end on this. 23, 4 and 5. I doubt very many of you are going to find your your, uh, your neighbor's ox in a ditch <laughs> this evening. But these are wonderful commandments that apply to all of life, don't they? It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You see that? Rescue, save, Bless, show mercy, love, even your enemy. 
if the, the, the saints in the old covenant were duty-bound to do so, how much more are we, children of the new covenant? Why? Because we understand. We understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And in him, Christ, we have been consecrated unto God that we might be as, that we might do as God does and be as God is, that we might do justly, that we might love mercy as we walk humbly with our God. Let's, let's pray and ask him to help us do just that. Let's pray.